Hello, my name is Keith Warrington, and today we're going to explore the true story of a blind man who meets Jesus. And you can guess what Jesus is going to do for him, and he does. The blind man gets to see. But that's not why the story is told by John, and only by John in his gospel. The reason he tells it is, well, let's first revisit the event. I wonder if you've had a tough week. If so, you'll sympathize with Jesus, because the people have just tried to kill him in the temple in Jerusalem, just after breakfast, just after he's been teaching them. They were going to stone him to death. Now, let me tell you the normal pattern for stoning someone in the first century. Jesus would have been laid on his stomach, and the first stone would have been dropped from twice his height. And if that didn't kill him, he would have been turned over, and another stone would have been dropped onto his heart. And if that didn't kill him, then everybody there would hurl a volley of stones at him until he was dead. If I'd been Jesus, I'd have been a bit shaken. Time for a quick getaway to a safe house, you'd think. But not for Jesus, because he'd seen a blind man. Now, Jesus could have been forgiven for walking by. After all, the blind man hadn't seen Jesus, and he didn't ask Jesus to heal him. In fact, nobody did. And if Jesus had wanted to heal him, well, he could have healed him when things had quietened down. But not Jesus. You see, Jesus had plans for this blind man that went far beyond healing him of his blindness. And those plans included you and they included me. And John wanted us to know about them. So let's read the story from the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it wasn't that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because night is coming when no one could work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So who is he, this blind man? He's not named. Apparently he's not that important. He's just a blind man. Nothing more needs to be said to characterize his status in life. He's blind. And blindness was one of the most devastating diseases in the ancient world. The rabbis in the first century concluded that a blind man was as good as dead. You see, 
To heal blindness was assumed to be as difficult as raising someone from the dead. Indeed, there's no example of blindness being healed at all in the Old Testament. The blind man, nor anybody else, was expecting a miracle. It was too difficult. Not even God had healed a blind man in the past. But it was worse because blind people were helpless, dependent on others, marginalized, miserable. And in a culture of honor and shame, it indicated the most dishonorable state. They were on their own. No one brings this man to Jesus. He has no hope for any future other than to be a beggar. Blindness, the ultimate disaster. But there was something else, even more pernicious, about being blind. You see, the Jews believed that blindness was a punishment for personal sin. Did you see that when Jesus met this blind man, blind from birth, his disciples asked him, who sin has caused the blindness? Someone must have sinned. Had the blind man sinned before he was born? Or was it the fault of his parents? He was blind from birth. And John mentions this six times as if to make the point. This was a man who didn't deserve to be restored. So people would have thought. Because to be blind meant that he'd sinned. There was no other option. That's why blind people couldn't serve in the temple. They couldn't be priests. Blindness was listed first in a list of physical ailments that precluded someone from functioning as a priest. Even blind animals weren't to be offered as sacrifices to God. Some religious leaders even said that blind people shouldn't be allowed into Jerusalem for fear that they would contaminate the city. Oh, yes. There was something deeply marginalizing about being blind in the Jewish world. It appeared that even God himself was uncomfortable about being with blind people. No wonder that the blind man doesn't ask Jesus for help. Why would he? But Jesus chooses to heal him anyway. And that tells me something about Jesus that's very special. And it's this. Jesus doesn't have to be asked to do something good for us before it happens, because he's more interested in doing us good than we can imagine. But then why does Jesus heal the man in such a strange way, putting earth and spittle on the man's eyes and telling him to go to a pool about a mile away and to wash it off? Why? Is that the way to heal blindness? No. So why? Well, remember, this is not just a story about healing. Something else is more important, and we need to ask questions of the text to find what it is. So let's consider the facts. Number one, Jesus does not immediately heal the man. He takes his time and mixes spittle and earth to produce clay and the people watch and they wonder why. While the man who can't even see what Jesus is doing just waits and wonders. Why not just heal him, Jesus? 
And then secondly, Jesus covers the man's eyes with clay. And John mentions this three times, earth, that he's mixed with his own spittle. Why? Jesus has never done this before or after. The man couldn't see before, and now he definitely can't see. He is, as it were, doubly blind. Why not just heal him, Jesus? Why slow the process down? Is it a reminder of how God created Adam from dust, as if to hint at the fact that Jesus is doing a God thing? Maybe. At the same time, spittle was associated with healing in that culture. And perhaps Jesus is letting the watchers know that something therapeutic is going to happen to the man. Maybe. No, there's something more important at stake here, and it has to do with obedience. Do you remember Jesus' first words to the man? Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, a name which John records means sent. Now, interestingly, in Isaiah chapter 8, the Jewish people then refused to obey God at the waters of Siloam. What will this blind man do? And interestingly, despite what Jesus has done to his eyes, the man obeys Jesus. And John mentions this fact twice. He obeyed without any hesitation or expectation that he'd achieve anything more than the washing of mud from his blind eyes. But in obeying Jesus, he got more than he anticipated. And that's the point. Obedience is good for us. Obeying Jesus is what is central to this story. At the start of the story, Jesus is identified as being sent by God and he obeys. And now Jesus sends a blind man and he passes the test of obedience as a would-be disciple because he obeys. But why did he obey Jesus? He couldn't even see him. Ah, well, he's going to learn that this is someone who has supreme authority and therefore is worthy of obedience. And this superlative authority of Jesus is demonstrated throughout the story, even before the healing. First, you remember that Jesus meets the man near the temple. But proximity to this sacred place has not affected restoration. It's proximity to Jesus that matters. And you'll also note that John tells us that this took place on the Sabbath. Jesus made clay and placed it on the man's eyes, as a result of which the Pharisees concluded he's broken Sabbath rules by working. And the message is, Jesus can do what he likes on the Sabbath because he's in charge of the Sabbath. And then, funnily enough, he implicates the man in breaking Sabbath law also by encouraging him to walk to the pool of Siloam and wash himself. Again, work as viewed by the religious leaders. And the lesson is again emphasized that Jesus can do whatever he wants, whatever the day of the week, because he is in charge. Now, on top of that, the blind man gets healed, demonstrating an authority never witnessed before. 
You see, Jewish leaders forbade any therapy being offered on the Sabbath as they viewed that as work. But Jesus healed him anyway. No one had done that before, not even God. Ah, but there's more. You see, Isaiah chapter 10 verse 17 refers to God as the light of Israel. But here, Jesus describes himself not as the light of Israel only, but as the light of the world. The supreme authority of Jesus is clear for all to see. And it's the authority of Jesus that's emphasized after the healing also. You see, the healing itself is described in just seven verses, but the following 30 verses trace the journey of discovery of the blind man concerning Jesus. John starts by revealing that the man doesn't request healing. In fact, he has no idea of who Jesus is, but he's learning. And John wants us to trace that journey. So first, he affirms that Jesus is a man, but worthy of his obedience. Three times, John mentions that fact. And then the man identifies Jesus as his healer twice. Then he refers to him as a prophet and as someone who is worthy of being followed. And then he identifies him as the unique healer of blindness and as someone to whom God listens. And then it begets humorous because he reprimands the religious leaders for not knowing who Jesus was. And he corrects their theology about God, him, a blind man. And then he says that Jesus is someone who sent from God with authority. And humorously, he assumes that their questions must indicate that they want to become his disciples as well. Well, that's when they throw him out. And it's at that point that John tells us that Jesus found the healed man who had been cast out by the religious establishment. Earlier, John tells us that Jesus found Philip and requested that he follow him. And in chapter 11, Jesus finds Lazarus, who, although dead, receives new life. And now here, the blind man who has been healed is found by Jesus, and he's offered the opportunity to begin a relationship with him. You see, Jesus likes to find people, just like he's found you. And then, finally, the man identifies Jesus as the son of man. It's another word for Messiah. And he refers to Jesus as Lord and one who is worthy of his trust and his worship. The man has reached the climax of his perception as to the identity of Jesus. And what's interesting is that Jesus does not commission him to another task or even call him to be a follower. And he's done that before with others. It's as if this man has achieved the highest calling possible. He's worshipping Jesus. The purpose of the story has been achieved. The objective has been reached. Jesus is worthy of worship. The man needs do no more. This is the one we are called to obey the one who deserves our obedience because he's God. 
And then John provides one final lesson that relates to this central issue of obedience. He records that while Jesus makes the clay and places it on the man's eyes, he asserts, we must work the works of him who sent me. Who's the we who works with Jesus? Is it the disciples? It can't be the man, surely. What did the man do to help Jesus? What did he do to enable Jesus to do what he wanted to do? All he did was obey. Jesus did the rest. Ah, but that's the point. When we obey Jesus, we're not just doing what we should do because he's God. When we obey him, we partner him in achieving his plans. Jesus, who has supreme authority and a blind man who can't even see where he's going, but together they achieve a miracle. Oh yes, Jesus is worthy of our obedience because of who he is, because of what he's done for us. But on top of that, Jesus says, let's see what happens when you obey me and when I do the rest. New life will start. Fresh opportunities will be developed. New prospects, changes in situations, fresh light will dawn. Whoever you are, blind, confused, hopeless, contented, relaxed, perfectly fine. Whoever we are, Jesus can make a difference in our lives, but he chooses to do it by using the little we have to offer, our obedience. And as a result, he enables us to be partners with him. He's remarkable. A transformer of lives, but also a gentle God who prefers to walk with us and partner with us to fulfill his plans with us, helping him rather than do it all on his own. Remarkable. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, that you healed this man, but also with us in mind. Help us to learn from his example and to see obedience as not an inconvenient imposition, but as an opportunity to honour you as our God who deserves it. And on top of that, you're even so kind that you use our obedience to bring about change in our community. Thank you so much. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed our time in John. Keep exploring these stories and slow down and ask questions of the text as you read. And you'll be surprised what you discover. And check out our website at Word and Spirit for free resources that will help you on your journey of encountering God through the